Thank you, Peter, for reading an epically long but wonderful passage of scripture for us. Let's pray, shall we, as we begin? Heavenly Father, as we look into your word now, would you, in your kindness and mercy, show us Jesus and fill us with joy in him? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but I love this time of year. Not, not the, uh, the weather, if I'm perfectly honest, uh, but the excitement, the expectation, the sort of sense of something is coming. And of course, we look forward, don't we, as Christians, to the particular delight that the something that's coming is not a thing but a person, the Lord Jesus. And I love that at Advent, we don't only look forward to Christmas through the lighting of the candles week by week, but we look beyond that, ultimately, to the day when the Lord Jesus will return. And this year, a bit in a sense like last year, we approach this time, don't we, Advent and looking forward to Christmas, with a degree of uncertainty. What's going to happen? How's it all going to play out? What's the government going to do next? Will Christmas happen? Will I stay well? Will my loved ones stay well? Well, as we've read that passage, we can see that uh, the readers that uh, Joel was addressing were also in a time of crisis. But through that time of crisis, we can see that there was joy coming. There was a better day coming. And as we go through our time of crisis, we can look forward as Christians with confidence and hope that a better time is coming because of the Lord Jesus. We read at the end of the chapter that Peter's just read, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what's going to happen ultimately. That's the hope of Advent. So as we look at this passage together, uh, we're going to take a fairly quick gallop through it, a bit of a headline-level view through the passage. But let it drive us to joy in Christ as we study it together. Let us drive us to the urgency of the task that we've already alluded to today, talking about uh, Operation Gabriel, of getting the wonderful news of this gospel into the hands of many who don't yet know it and don't yet know the Lord Jesus. So uh, just to let you know so you can work your way through it with me, I've got three uh, headings that represent a day. Firstly, the day of disaster. Secondly, the day of the Lord. Thirdly, the day of restoration. So the day of disaster, this is uh, chapter 1. Now, we don't know exactly when uh, the book of Joel was written, uh, but it, clearly he's writing at the time when the people are suffering under an incredible tragedy, a plague of locusts, which is unfolding all across Judah. Uh, it's perhaps a fulfillment of the prophecy from Deuteronomy 28, verses 37 to 42, where we read... You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. 
Now, I don't know what you know about locusts. I don't claim to be a particular expert, um, but I did know last year there was devastation across some parts of northeastern Africa because of swarms of locusts. Uh, interestingly, I discovered that normally they're solitary creatures, but as the food supply diminishes, as things dry out, so they come together where the food is. And then there's hordes of them together, and when the rain comes, it provides the perfect storm of the perfect conditions for locusts to hatch, not in their millions, but in their billions. National Geographic says this, a desert locust swarm, that's a particular type of locust, can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day, so a swarm of such size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. Just to put that into a little bit of context, because those numbers are sort of meaningless, a swarm of locusts the size of Paris would eat more in one day than half the population of France. It's quite something, isn't it, to imagine such devastation. And as we've heard, there are, uh, there are certain scientific reasons why these swarms happen, but the plague that Joel describes was no natural coincidence. And even by the standards of his day, the swarm, we read in chapter 1, verse 2, was on a scale never previously seen. And that was surely appropriate, given the rebellion of the people of God, whom Joel is challenging in this book, was perhaps on a scale never previously seen. They'd constantly deserted the Lord their God. Now, it's clear that uh, Joel sees this plague as a clear judgment from God on the people who turned away from the Lord. They turned away from him en masse to idolatrous practices. We'll come to those in chapter 3 next week. But in passing, I do want to say this, and I want to say it as clearly as I possibly can say it. It is clear, I think, that this swarm of locusts was sent by God in judgment on his people. We see that in chapter 2, verse 25. But that in no means implies that all disasters that come across us are sent by God as judgment. The Bible doesn't say that. So whilst there are things that we can learn, and it's right to learn from disasters, such as the current pandemic, we can't claim with any certainty that COVID is, for example, God's judgment on the world. Nevertheless, such natural disasters as we're currently facing in this current pandemic can be seen as a foretaste of the day of the Lord to come. They give us an opportunity to reflect on what Joel calls the day of the Lord that is to come to help us prepare for it and spur us into the task of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. So very briefly, let's look at Joel's description of the scope and devastation of this particular swarm. And we see it in chapter 1, verse 4. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. 
what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. The damage is so severe and so extensive that the whole of society is brought to ruin across every layer. So we see verses 5 to 7, the drunkards can't get their booze anymore. Young women are left as mourning widows in verse 8. Priests are left in mourning because of the apparent absence of the Lord and the lack of any offerings to bring him. Verse 9, there's no food to eat. Verse 10, farmers' livelihoods are destroyed. Verses 11 and 12. No wonder then we read in verse 12 at the second part of it, surely the people's joy is withered away. And of course, the question is, what was the reason for the disaster? As we see in chapter 2, verse 25, it was sent by the Lord, but why? Is this another example of a nasty Old Testament God? I have good friends who feel a little bit like I love Jesus, but I don't like this Old Testament God. But friends, that's to misread the Old Testament and ignore the new, isn't it? We know that Jesus is God. Everything that we see in Jesus is true of God. If we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So why has God sent this disaster? Well, it's certainly not because he's got some malicious, grudging, ogre-like desire to pour out more horror on his people. Rather, he's giving them a foretaste of the day of the Lord, our second day. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. It's a warning about a day that is yet to come, a day that will be even worse than this current disaster. The day of the Lord, sometimes referred to as that day is coming. And it's a key theme for the book of Joel. We see it mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 2, verses 1, 11, 31, chapter 3, verses 14 and 18. And it is key to understanding what Joel is saying in this little book. Just glance your, mind, your, your eye down to chapter 1, verse 15. And we can see something of the day of the Lord. It begins with, alas, an exclamation perhaps of how serious that day is going to be. So serious that in chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord himself speaks and orders an alarm to sound. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Suggests the Lord himself speaking. Then Joel takes over, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And then at the end of this particular section in the book, Joel again draws our attention to the day of the Lord in verse 11. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Well, between those verses in chapter 2 
Joel uses the horror of the locust plague as an illustration of the terror that will come on the day of the Lord for all those who have rejected God, like as he's speaking at the moment, his people who have turned their backs to idols. The coming of the day of the Lord won't just be like the army of locusts that have brought devastation on such a catastrophic scale that we see in chapter 1. The day of the Lord, chapter 2, verse 2, will come like an even bigger army, leaving devastation in its wake, verse 3. It will be terrifying to behold, verses 4 to 6. It will be unstoppable, and there will be nowhere that you can run to escape from it, verse 7 and 8. Do you see that locust plague that Joel is using? He's using just as an illustration of what's to come. And so he asks, who can endure the day of the Lord? Well, the good news, of course, is that those who can endure the day of the Lord are those who are the Lord's possession. That's what we've been learning in our recent series in 1 Peter, isn't it? 1 Peter 2 verse 9, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Those are the ones who can endure the day of the Lord. And that's why at Advent we can draw such hope from this prophecy of Joel. You see, for Christians, the day of the Lord is a day when the pain and the suffering of this world will finally be done away with forever and his people will find their eternal refuge in him. We'll come back to that later day, next week. But the Lord has not sent this current disaster because he just desires, desires to pile pain on more pain on more pain for his beloved people. But actually, it is a mark of his love for them, that they are his Beloved, he wants them. He doesn't just want them, he yearns for them, he longs for them to repent of their sin. He yearns for them to return to a right relationship with him before that terrible day. He doesn't long for their destruction, but for their restoration verses 12 and 13. Joel is warning his readers about a future day, the day of the Lord, when God would demonstrate his perfect, holy love by judging all people with perfect fairness, with righteousness, with justice. And we all expect justice to be done, don't we? You can't have missed the tragic news um, over the last couple of weeks about the case of that little boy, six-year-old boy, Arthur Labinjo Hughes, tragically tortured and killed by his stepmother and by his father. And they were jailed respectively for 29 and 21 years in prison. But the question's flying around, isn't it? Was that sentence really long enough? In fact, the officials are currently reviewing it to see whether it was unduly lenient given the horrors of that crime. 
You see, justice must be done, but justice must be seen to be done. That's a natural human desire, isn't it? Well, in his love for his beloved people, God will not turn a blind eye to sinful rebellion against him. His love demands that justice must be done. And thence those, hence those who refuse the salvation he offers in the gospel are in a very precarious and dangerous situation. God is anxious that no one should face that future judgment without first repenting of their sin, being restored to the Lord in his grace and compassion. We see that in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He longs to forgive. So what does Joel call Israel and, by extension, us to do? Have a look with me at chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. In other words, the church leaders are to call the people to repentance, to cry out to the Lord. In verse 19, we see that Joel himself cries out, leading by example. And what does that crying out to the Lord look like? Well, chapter 2, 12, verses 12 and 13 are key. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. You know, the Lord doesn't just want your words of apology. You know the kind of thing when brother's been nasty to sister and dad says, go and apologize. I'm sorry, but I'm definitely going to do it again. Not that kind of grudging apology. No, the Lord wants your heart. He wants all of you from the very depths of who you are. He wants what Deuteronomy chapter 10 describes as a circumcised heart. Hear these verses from Deuteronomy. Oh, now and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways? to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Circumcise your hearts. You see, the Lord wants your heart because of his heart. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
That's why everybody's called to repent in chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. The call to repent as a nation is far more important than anything else, more important than feeding babies or a bride. Uh, feeding babies or a bride and groom consummating their marriage, verse 16. Even the priests who would normally offer sacrifices are not exempt. Verse 17. The urgency then builds up through those verses in chapter 2. It comes to a crescendo to what I'm calling the third day, the day of restoration. Chapter 2, verses 18 through to 27. The people of Judah have suffered a catastrophe with these locusts, haven't they? And it's a means of the Lord to call them back to him, the God whom they had forsaken. And now in verse 18, the Lord responds, Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. You see, through sending the calamity of the locust infestation to blight the land, the Lord, in his graciousness and compassion and mercy and kindness and patience and infinite love, God, our heavenly Father, was revealing his heart of compassion for his people, his heart that they had broken repeatedly and callously. And that's the message we want to share with people this Christmas, isn't it? That's why we're doing Operation Gabriel. Let's uh, really get those, those efforts in to get those cards delivered. Because we want people to hear that the day of the Lord is coming. And that if when the day of the Lord arrives, you have not turned to Christ and trusted him, then the day of the Lord is going to be terrible. Who can endure it? But it's a, mess a message that's full of hope, isn't it? For those who are trusting in Christ. Because the God who sent that plague of locusts is the God who hears the people's, the, the people's cry of lamentation and he hears their repentance. And he comes to them. In closing, let me read once more. These beautiful verses from chapter 2, verse 18. Perhaps you'd follow them with me. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land, a reference there to the locusts, with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow 
with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Friends, does that fill you with joy as we look forward to the coming of the day of the Lord? If it doesn't, do talk to me afterwards and let's see if we can explore that further. But let's rejoice in this glorious, compassionate, forgiving, restoring God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, there are many challenging things in the book of Joel about the coming of the day of the Lord. Please would you help us by your spirit to rejoice in the wonder of knowing this compassionate God who so longs for us to be restored to him. Father, bring us back to a right relationship with you if we have erred and as we have strayed. Fill us with joy this Advent time, looking forward to the day of the Lord. And help us in our task of proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus to all those who we meet, that they too may know that joy for themselves. In Jesus' precious name, I pray these things. Amen.